Today's reading comes from Genesis chapter 44, verses 1 through 17. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sack with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practiced divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent." Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. He searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you, know, do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. And behold, we are at my, Lord, my, my Lord's servants. We are my Lord's servants, both he, we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. You may be seated. God's testing in us reveals a changed heart. God tests us even though when he knows that we will succeed to prove his work in our lives. That what is going on, that is what is going on in the te- text today. It's a test. Not for Benjamin, even though he may feel like it was, but for the brothers whom we read hated their second to youngest brother for being chosen over them and favored by their father. Tests, you know, God tests us all the time. He tests his faithful more than he tests those who are outside the covenant of God. Why does God test us? That's a question I've been asked many times. The obvious answer is that nothing, um, nothing is proven until it is tested. I like watching the show, and I think one of my slides has this on there, Forged in Fire. There we go. 
Um, there's a show called Forge and Fire on the History Channel. And what the basic, of, the basic gist of it is these uh, men, the guy who's all surprised here, um, they're smiths and they make different things, make different weapons. And uh, two of them go into the finale. And in the finale, they have a certain kind of um, object they're supposed to smith. And once they have it done, it looks beautiful. I've never seen one that didn't look wonderful on the outside. And on the outside, it looks like it's strong. It looks like it's, it's ready for some work. But you don't know anything until you actually test it. In fact, all of them have a certain amount of confidence, a certain amount of apprehension, because they don't know what's about to happen. And every time, now and again, you get a catastrophic failure. You can see here, they took the guy's sword and broke it against that piece of armor right there. I've seen them take people's like, knives and like, stab rocks with it. And I'm like, okay, is anything supposed to stand up to that? Why does God test us? One of the reasons why God tests us, it's for us. And really not even so much for him, because he knows everything. He knows the end to the beginning. One of, the way, one of the reasons he tests us is to show truly what is in us. Is it, have we built on the foundation of Christ with costly things, or is it wood, hay, and stubble? Failure is a certain kind of, he tests us even though he know, knows that we are going to fail for a reason. He tests even though he knows that we will, that we will succeed for another reason. Up here I have the failure. Um, in the, in uh, tests that we fail, the Holy Spirit takes the opportunity to reveal in us our own structural defects. Something can look fine on the outside. We come to church, we put on our mask, everything looks fine, and then we get tested. Something bad is allowed into our life. Christ said, in this world you will have trouble. This, this will test us in many ways. Failures, we learn more from failure than we do from success because in failure we realize that we may look good on the outside, but inside there's something. There's something that we are holding apart from Christ that he wants us to surrender. These 10 brothers that, we've, that I've been preaching on, and I realized this morning, it's like if I do a full recap every week, by the time I'm done with the recap, I'm going to have to say, let's pray and get, let's uh, go on with our day. So I'm not going to do a full recap, but let me just say a couple things about these 10 brothers, because this test was for them that we read about in our text today. They have failed this very test before. They didn't act so much like their father, Jacob, but like their uncle, Esau. In fact, in many ways worse, because Esau never actually harmed Jacob. The only time he put his hands on him was to hug him tightly. Yet they put their hands on their brother and lowered him into a pit took his coat of many colors and tore it to shreds. Peter is tested three times the night Jesus was betrayed. He is tested by his own very words where he told Christ, I will go with you even to the cross. And Jesus told him, by the time the rooster crows three times, you'll deny me three times. For the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And sure enough, that night he's arrested. He is standing outside the court and Peter, somebody recognizes his voice and they're like, hey, you got an accent. You got a Galilean accent. I don't know if that's like the hillbilly accent of the ancient Near East, but it must be very noticeable. And they're like, are you with Jesus? And he's like, no, no, no way. Another person, like, another person asks him, he refuses. A slave girl, a slave girl melts his courage into a puddle and says, no, I know, I saw you with him. And he's like, and he curses himself and says, I don't know the man. Those are three tests, and he fails each one right after another. Moses is given a rock, and instead of speaking to the rock, he strikes the rock, and by that makes himself unworthy to enter the promised land. David, there's a woman bathing on the roof. He fails that test. 
The tests we fail give us opportunity to repent of that sin. In every one of those examples, these are people who not just repented of that sin, but also went on to be seen as sons of the living God. In fact, David was known as a man after God's own heart, even after he stumbled and fell. But he did not fall as to be completely cut off, but only to repent. It reminds us that this all-surpassing power is not from us and only in him. But what about tests we pass? Why would God put us through a test he knows we are going to pass? Why does God test us if he knows that we will pass the test, if we will succeed in the task? Abraham was told to bring his son, his only son, whom he loved, and sacrifice him on a hill. Abraham does this, and the Lord stops him and says that he now knows that he fears God. The three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they had their own test. And it was a test that many people in the Babylonian Empire fail where the king sets up a statue of himself, and at a certain time, you can't worship anybody else. You have to bow down to this statue. He was legitimately their king, by the way, because it was God's purpose for them to go into the exile, but God's commandments still ring true. It's a fact you are an American citizen. And when it comes to the civil and criminal law, you should follow it until it conflicts with your conscience before the Lord then you have no choice but not to bow to these golden statues they set up before us. And if you remember this story in Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're taken before the king. And you know what God doesn't do here? He doesn't remove them from the situation. He doesn't do. It is the same king that when this king sees his kingdom and he starts saying how awesome this kingdom is, that God strikes him with insanity. He doesn't do that here, though. In fact, he lets the king in his own selfishness persecute these men who will not bow down to this king, to his statue, to his image. And they tell him, O king, our God is fully able to rescue us from this, but if not, we will still not bow down. And they are not saved from the fire. They're thrown into the fire, but Christ meets them in the fire. And most of the time, God will not remove your trial from you, but he'll be with you in the trial. God will not rescue you out of everything, but he'll rescue you in everything. These are tests that we pass. Why does God do these things? It is to show the all-surpassing work and power of the Holy Spirit in your life to change your heart and to build you into the person that God wants you to be. The final outcome of the Lord's test, whether, whether you pass them or fail them, are the, the ultimate outcome is because he loves you. In rare cases, it's to reveal those who don't love him so that they might be called to repentance. But often those who receive a test from the Lord are people who do love the Lord and are being transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ, even in the Old Testament here. He wants us, he loves us, and he wants our greatest good, not what we think our good is. Because he will not let anything other than himself be your center. That is your greatest good for him to be your center. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, each one's work will become manifest, for the Lord will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through a fire." You know, one thing I love about the Lord, I mean, so many things, of course, but here's one thing. He understands that we don't 
value treasure in heaven like we ought to. So he presses the situation so that you might have treasure in heaven. Because really, if it was up to us, I think very few people would enter heaven with any kind of reward, even though we have the words of Christ saying, despise the rewards of this earth that thieves and moss and stuff destroy, but look for treasures in heaven. So God will use these tests and will give us treasure in heaven. It reveals to us also the working of the Holy Spirit in us. It also reveals into, in us ways that we are missing the mark that we can't see. Joseph has been testing his brothers in this last chapter. But before this, Joseph's brothers have been tested multiple times. What we see as Becca was reading, maybe that seems to you almost kind of like a vindictive thing, like Joseph is getting back at his brothers here in these tests. Now, I don't really believe that to be true because Joseph is the very first person in Genesis. Genesis is the book of the beginnings. There's lots of firsts. He is the first person in all of Scripture where it is said that the Holy Spirit of God lives in him. He is the first person in Genesis chapter 4, verse 38. And who recognizes this but Pharaoh himself? But not just Pharaoh. Everybody recognizes this, this about Joseph. Joseph here, Joseph seems... Like he's being vindictive, but commentator Lighthammer, Gusick, Steve Lawson disagree with this, and I, I disagree with it as well. I believe Joseph, whether he knows it or not, is being used by the Holy Spirit to test his brothers. Ultimately, all of this, what is going on, is for these brothers. God is using Joseph to reach out to his brothers. Joseph is testing his brothers, and by extension, God is also testing them. Not because he doesn't know what will happen, but, will, but what will happen will reveal the Holy Spirit in them and the change of their heart. God has tested these brothers before with their brothers. Their first test, once again, they fail. That's Joseph. They see Joseph. He's favored by their father. They hate him for it. He has dreams about them in which they bow to him, and they hate him all the more. They want to kill him. Okay, they, they have failed the test to love your brother as yourself. They have failed the test. They have the heart of Cain. They have failed that test. Joseph goes to Egypt. But the next test with the brother they have, they succeed. It's Simeon. Simeon is put back after the first trip. He is held back as ransom for them to return. And they could just let him rot. And it's part of this test, right? Will they do to Simeon what they did to Joseph? Just let him rot in prison? Become a slave of this governor? Because if they come back, they have the money in their sacks. He could accuse them of thievery and take them all as slaves. But they've passed that test. They've passed other tests as well. When Joseph, last week I talked about this feast of grace. They're amazed that they look one to one another because Joseph has seated them according oldest to the youngest perfectly. It's like, what is this guy? How does he know these things about our family? Oh, he knows a lot. In fact, he gives the youngest of them five times the portion that they get. And you can imagine Joseph looking over, trying to see if there's any sour faces, if anybody's going to object. Envy is such a wicked sin. St. Thomas Aquinas in Summa Theologica, he, he questions, and it's a long debate with himself, whether or not envy really is the origination of all other sins. It turns out it would be pride, but envy was a big contender. And he says envy is the one sin that doesn't feel good when we are doing it. It makes us feel small and petty. You can imagine Joseph looking over the scripture text. It really doesn't say they had any kind of reaction other than amazement. Amazement of this grace of this meal. So Joseph has a new test. And this test will be very much like that first test. The youngest brother who is pampered by their father 
who represents all the wounds of the Father in their life, will they let him rot for a crime they believe he committed? Or will they stand up for their brother? Will they defend their brother? I imagine this was like a flashback of 22 years before this, when they could hear their brother screaming from the pit, brothers, brothers, save me. And they turned a deaf ear. Passing and failing tests both have an impact. Clinical psychologist Jordan Peterson, psychologist um, Jordan Peterson in his book, 12 Rules for Life, likens our successes and failures to the behavior of lobsters. I thought this was very interesting. A lobsters, they fight all the time. Uh, I can see why when you're about, you're, you're, the end of your life is going to be getting boiled to death. Might as well, uh, I don't know. And you've got nothing but pinchers. Anyway, they fight all the time. And most of the time, nothing really happens. Sometimes one really beats up the other. The one who gets beat up, his brain gets flooded with oxytocin and other chemicals that get flooded into our brain when we have a defeat as well. But their brain kind of dissolves and then regrows. And this new brain is very timid and will not... If any other lobster wants to fight him, it'll just back away. It'll back away from the food it needs to eat. It'll do to its own detriment. And it's kind of like in this really tough thing. But every now and again, this same lobster will get into a fight that it doesn't want, but it'll win or at least won't get beat. And then their brain floods again with chemicals. The old brain dissolves. A new brain takes hold that is much more dominant. It's gotten its pinchers back, so to speak. When we fail tests, we often... It often has that effect of making us think, well, that's my fate. I'm just going to fail the next test and the next test. That's who I am. No, dear one, you don't get to decide who you are. Christ does because he paid for you with his very blood. I've heard the quote, I've learned much more from my failures than my successes. I thought that was from Michael Jordan. I went online. It seems like everybody takes credit for this quote. So I'm going to say, uh, Pastor Jason Fisher said, I learned much more from my failures than my successes. Um, the Apostle Paul considered everything in his former life when he was boasting just to be foolishness and rubbish. That he had everything a person his age who was a Jewish man could have. He says it's all garbage compared to knowing Jesus Christ. Whatever failure he had in the past, it only served to motivate his desire to know Christ more. So here in this chapter, we're going to go over the whole chapter this morning. We have verses 1 through 5, and that's the test. That's the plot. That's Joseph coming up with this new test for his brothers. Two, the brothers' confidence. The confidence is in 6 through 9. Verses 10 through 17, the evidence. In verses 18 through 34, the sacrifice. Let's start off with the test. Once again, God is testing these brothers using Joseph. And allow me to share with you a quote. You're all scared, and that's why you will fail the test. You have to test yourself every day, gentlemen. Once you stop testing yourself, you get slow. And when that happens, they kill you. That was uh, Emilio Estevez in uh, Young Guns. Anyway, we move on. (laughs) Verses 1 and 2, Joseph's generosity in the plot. In verses 1 and 2, we see a repeat of what their first trip to Egypt was like. Their sacks get filled with grain, the money gets put in, and an additional item, Joseph's cup. It's not just some cup you have lying in your house. It's, you know, not, not this. It's the cup. It's made out of silver. For other rulers, it was used in occult practices. I'll talk about the significance of that later on. It's his silver cup. This isn't some cup, but it is the cup. 
He is going to test them to see if they have really changed. He is going to make it very easy for them. It used to be hard. They had to drag him out of the pit, sell him to slavery. All they have to do now is nothing. Just stand by. Let your brother be taken away to slavery. He has already given Benjamin five times the portion of the rest. This does not give him a conclusive idea if, if their heart has changed or not. Now he will make the issue bigger and it will demand a response. He sends them away in verse 3. I'm sure this is a bit of a mixed messages for them. It's like, hey, come into my house. Let's have a meal. It's a huge banquet. And then once they're done, he's like, okay, it's time for you guys to go. I don't know, if you've, I don't know about you. I'm kind of an introvert. And I've got kind of a, a social uh, battery. And if I have you over, um, after a while, that battery gets kind of low. And I don't have, I don't have the... Um, I don't know what you'd call it, the whatever to tell you, hey, it's time for you to leave. But if I start falling asleep while we're talking, that is my way of saying that. Um, I'm sure on their way, they are there, they, on their way, they are saying to themselves, man, this is a weird moment, right? Last time he accuses us, accuses us of being spies. This time he's treating us like friends and family. And now he's like, get out of here. And in verses 4 and 5, it's the rest of the plot. He sends his steward after them. His steward's going to come to them, and he's going to make a false claim. In verses, in verses 4 and 5, they had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid good, evil for good? It is not from, is it? Um, is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he, has, he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. I imagine that, you know what I love about the steward here? He's like, sounds good, I'll do that. He has no idea what's going on. And to his, you know, from his perspective, his master's super generous when they get there. He's also super harsh to them. He holds one of them as, as a surety against the rest. And then they come back. He throws a big banquet with them, eats with them. By the way, this was an abomination to the Egyptians to eat with Israelites, to eat with shepherds like they were. So it's like, okay, he really likes them, but now he's telling me, plant evidence on them, go after them, and pretend like they stole it. He's a good steward, though. He does what his master says. He knows that he doesn't have to understand. He just has to do what his master says. Let me speak about this uh, silver cup of divination that is being mentioned here um, and why there is uh, such a big deal being made of it, of it here in the scripture text. In Egypt, the, um, whether, um, whether you were one of the priests or you were some high official, um, you, were, you were known to practice in occult practices like divination. Divination as a practice in which you get special knowledge from the gods or whomever, whatever spirits or occult practices that you engage in. Um, what this effectively does is it plants the seed in the brother's mind that their sin is known. This man knows um, what, they, what they have done. They don't know how Joseph, they don't know it's Joseph. To them, he's just a governor, but he knows about them. He knows things about the exact birth order of these guys. He knows other things that he lets on. He gives five times the portion to Benjamin. In Luke chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Their fear, this plants in them a fear. So it's the same fear that many people have, that most of us have, is that what is hidden will be made known. For 20 years, Joseph was in slavery and in prison, but his heart was always free. His conscience was always clear. 
But for 22 years, they have never left that pit. They've been in slavery of their silence, and in their, and in their guilty conscience, they have been in prison. But God is not satisfied with them being in prison. He is not satisfied with them living in a guilty conscience. He is going to set them free. God tests you as well. God tests his people even to this day. For two sermons, I have mentioned how God uses both good and bad to teach us, to disciple us, to test us. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the testing of so the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In Job chapter twenty three verse ten, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I will come out as gold. And in Psalm sixty six ten, for you, O God, have tested me, tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. So we still go through tests. We still go through tests. And the purpose of that test is to refine you as gold, to refine you as silver. Because you and me, we have blind spots. We lie to ourselves all the time. We create an image in our heart of who we think we are. And it's a golden image that we bow down to. And God will not accept any false idols in the heart of his loved ones. Virtue tested is not virtue at all. Christ himself had to be tested in every way, tempted in every way, but was found without sin. His virtue was proven. You think about the baptism of Christ. It's a baptism of repentance. He has nothing to repent of. Nothing to repent of. And John knows this. He says, you know, I, I, you shouldn't, I shouldn't baptize you. You should baptize me. And Jesus said, this is to fulfill all righteousness. Sometimes we want to believe the whole hallmark, hallmark thing. It's the thought that counts. The thought doesn't count. Thoughts have to be expressed by actions. We do what we believe. And it's even in the doing, righteousness is fulfilled. Even though he has nothing to repent of, this fulfilled all righteousness. So that Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 and 9, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who would obey him. So the first part is the test. Second, right here, six through nine, is how they respond. In confidence, they haven't done anything. How do you respond when you are falsely accused? Everyone seems to have a different opinion on exactly how an innocent person acts. Well, I don't really care because they were innocent, and this is their reaction. It's, a, it's confidence. It's overwhelming confidence. Not just in themselves and each other. None of us did this. Search everything. And in verse 6, we see, once again, that faithful steward, he overtakes them. He spoke to them these words. They said to him, they, they, they said to him Why does my Lord speak, um, Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sack we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we, we steal silver or gold from, the, from your Lord's house? The steward one thing we can say of this steward is he is faithful. He has no idea what his master is doing, but he does it anyway. Understanding his optional obedience is mandatory. He trusts and ultimately he knows that this will be for the good because he trusts the character of his master. And that's something. That's something that 
Now, I've said before, we are hesitant to pray thy will be done because we are secretly suspicious of the Father's intentions towards us. And that says so much against the very character of God because we're like, I don't want to submit myself to God because what if he makes me do X, Y, and Z and I don't want to? Because he's, he's such a terrible father? Because he's such a wicked God? Because that's what we're saying when we say that. This man, he trusts, his, he trusts his master, although he has absolutely no idea what his master is doing right here. You know, the best thing any of us can hear at the end of our life, it is not, you've been, you've been an awesome athlete. It's not even you've been a good dad, father, husband, a wife, mother. It's not, hey, you did a really great job at the rotary or whatever our pursuits are. It's this, well done, my good and faithful servant. They have a past of honesty with this servant and with Joseph's house. In the past, when they saw that silver, they, they brought it back, even though the steward had told them that was a blessing from your God. So they overstate their case. It's very extreme. Their confidence is so extreme. They propose a much harsher penalty than, than the steward or anybody really would think would be rational. They're like, you find that cup, kill the guy. The rest of us will be your slaves. And the steward, he's like, okay, um... Whoever I find the cup with, I'm just going to take them as my slave because that's the plan. He sticks to the plan. This is a frame-up. We know, the steward knows this is a frame-up. Their hot confidence will become ice cold once that cup is found in Benjamin's sack. The confidence they have is what we should have as followers of Christ. We should not suffer as evildoers, as 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 15 says, but only as, as, uh, as uh, slaves of righteousness. When the evidence gets found out, their confidence evaporates, verses 10 through 17. There's a scene in Indiana Jones, and you probably could tell from my uh, picture today. This is the opposite of that scene. In the scene in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, they're looking for the Holy Grail, and this, this joker right here finds what he thinks is the Holy Grail, and he drinks from it, and, and bad stuff happens, and the guy tells him, you've chosen unwisely. This is the exact opposite. They don't want the cup to be in the sack, right? They're like, we're positive. We don't have the cup. And they find the cup anyway. The steward in verse 10, he softens the penalty before they search the men. He remembers the plan and knows no crime has actually been committed. His master has a plan, so stick to the plan. In verses 13 through, 11 through 13, it is the worst. Then, then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. This is the worst-case scenario. But why is it the worst-case scenario? Benjamin is everything Joseph was to them. He's the pampered youngest son of their father's favorite wife and, his fa and their father every day of their life. Let them know you're second to these kids. Why are they so affected? Why do they rip their clothes? Because there's been a change in their heart 22 years ago. Between 22 years and that day, something has changed. 22 years before that, they had lowered their brother into the pit. Their brother cried for mercy, and they turned a deaf ear to his, ear, to his pleas. I don't know. I didn't do the math on this, but it doesn't take very long for the sound waves to hit their ears. But it took 22 years before the pleas of Joseph entered their hearts. 
And now they're changed. They tear their clothes. And they go with the steward back to Egypt. The steward said, I'm just taking the guy who has the, the cup. But they go with him. You know what they face in Egypt? Maybe the governor over all of Egypt, who has the power of life and death, might decide just to kill them all and be done with it. Take them all as slaves. They're holding out some hope. There might be some hope here that Benjamin might be saved. So they go with him, and in verse 15, Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know a man like me can practice divination? Sorry, verse 14. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Pastor David Gusick says, if you are filming this right here, as they're bowing low to the ground, you can imagine a little smile on the face of Joseph, trying to suppress it, probably holding his mouth like... Joseph had two dreams. They already hated him because of his favored status with their father. But this says they hated him all the more for his dreams. So he has two dreams. One, they're out in the field. They have sheaves of wheat. Their sheaves of wheat bow to his. His second dream is so much more in which the very stars themselves bow down to Joseph. In the book of Revelation, there's this woman who's pregnant with a child in which this dragon wants to eat. We are told that this is a great sign in the heavens. And this great woman, she has a crown of 12 stars. So much of Revelation is shadowed, is, is reaved in the imagery of the Old Testament. This image in Revelation chapter 12 is the image that Joseph has in his mind when the stars bow down to him. And he even sees the sun and moon bow down to him. Here, the stars are bowing down. And that's, you know, one thing I, I, throughout this whole series I wanted to cement in our hearts is for us not to look down on the patriarchs. Because in the rest of the Bible, they're the best of people. But for us to see that if these great men are so fallen and wicked without the Lord, we need to have that kind of same humbleness as God takes us through. And as we see the changed heart in them, we look after this changed heart in ourselves. These, 12, these 11 stars bow down to Joseph. You look at his exact words in 15 that I read to you. Let me talk about these, this cup. People, when they read this part, they're like, okay, why is Joseph practicing divination? Okay, that's weird, right? Was he actually practiced divination? I've got a slide about divination in ancient Egypt with, uh, with using a cup. Thank you so much. I don't know how well you can read this. Maybe I should have put it in an insert, but I didn't. So anyway, I guess you can go on later on because the computer will actually pop up. Here are uh, five different ways ancient Egyptians used cups for divination. Number one, figures were reflected by the rays of light uh, that were permitted to fall on the water. So they would just take it into the sun and they would make guesses on what the uh, refractions of the light would mean. Two, they would melt wax and they would pour it into the water. And whatever it hardened into, they would make some kind of Rorschach guess on that's what the gods wanted you to know. Um, weird stuff. <laughs> the cup was shaken, and the position, size, and number of the bu bubbles which rose to the surface was considered. I didn't know they did the whole, like, chocolate milk and blowing bubbles into it, but I guess they did, and they thought that that meant something. Four, there were thrown into the water plates of gold, silver, uh, of, uh, plates of gold and of silver, precious stones with magical characters engraved on them. 
That's an interesting thing because it's a very similar practice with the Norse religion as well, with the rune stones. Um, and then five, uh, the inquirer fixed his eyes on some particular point in the cup until he was thrown into a dreamlike or clair clairvoyant state when he could see things strange and in indescribable, throw themselves into a frenzy. I say all of this, I go through all of that to say I don't think that Joseph was doing that at all because I look at his exact words and he says, do you not know a man like me? He doesn't say, don't you know I use it? He says a man like me because he's planting the seeds. Their secret sins, their heart has been laid bare already. And we see that in their response as we go forward in verse 16 where we have, and Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are your Lord's servants. They were innocent of this crime, but they knew they were guilty of another crime. So yes, they're like, what can we do? What can we say? We're guilty as charged, not of this, but of something so much worse. And now God has finally caught up to us. I remember a professor of mine in Bible college, he was uh, preaching on Ecclesiastes and, and he was giving this uh, story, I don't have this story, so it's his, Aaron Thurber, and uh, that he was, one time he was speeding and there was somebody behind him and the cop got the person behind him, obviously unjustly because, you know, he, had, uh, he was the one speeding, not the guy behind him, but the thing said him. So another time, the exact opposite happened and as he was being, as he was being ridden the ticket, he's like, that's even Stephen, I guess. That's kind of their attitude right here. They're like, we know you know more than what you're saying. And we'll accept any punishment. In verse 17, but he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go in peace to your father. You see how easy Joseph is making this test for them to fail? Do nothing. Just go back to your father in peace. You have my gold. You have my grain. Go ahead, go ahead and go. I'm just going to keep Benjamin. No, in Joseph's mind, he knew they hated him because he was everything Benjamin was. So shouldn't they let him rot? That's the test. What will they do in this test? And that's why my fourth one is the sacrifice. Judah is the one who is now the leader amongst these 12. He's not the oldest. He is the one that God has chosen that the Messiah for Jesus Christ is the line of the tribe of Judah should come from. Judah is the guy, I want to remind you about this, Judah is the guy who had the idea of selling their brother into slavery. See, it wasn't enough. He's like, you know, this is my paraphrase. Okay, we want to get rid of our brother, that's good. Maybe we can make some money off of it too. And he was a firm believer in the rules of acquisition. You know, customers are like family. Exploit them. And he, uh, he, they, they send his brother. He is the one. He has failed test after test after test. Judah is the guy. Remember, he had a daughter-in-law named Tamar. His two oldest sons are wicked, and God takes their life. And he, seems to, he looks to punish Tamar for that. Tamar dresses up like a prostitute. He has relations with her. She's pregnant. He is wanting to burn her alive. And she gives him the signet that he gave her. He says, she is more righteous than I. Judah's heart has been so changed to this point that we see in verses 18 through 34, which makes up the majority of this chapter, 
And I didn't have Becca read this because we'll, we'll go through it here in just a second. I'm going to summarize a lot of it because it's just a summary of what's been going on. Judah's speech that takes place, that takes up so much of this chapter, is mostly a recap, but it's something so much more. H.C. Leopold uh, said, This is one of the manualist, most straightforward speeches ever delivered by any man. For depth of feeling and sincerity of purpose, it stands unexcelled. Donald Barnhouse called it the most moving address in all of the word of God. I can see where they're coming from here because it's not simply the address itself, it's the context of the address. It's who's giving it. It's a guy so selfish, he sells his brother into slavery, now saying, take me as your slave. Judah is the leader and he is showing it. He is not leading according to the world standards. If he's leading according to the world standards, well, let's take off before we lose any more brothers. Hey, let's stop while we're ahead. If he's leading according to the world standards, he is telling his brothers what to do or asking one of his brothers to be slave in replace of Benjamin. He is leading the way his progeny thousands of years later would tell his disciples to lead. Not like the Gentiles who lorded over those but the person who wants to be greatest among you must be your slave. And he is literally offering himself up as a slave. We read here in this next portions here, I'm going to go to skip all the way to verse 30. Now, therefore, as soon as I came to your servant, my father, he calls their father Joseph's servant. I think it's interesting about that. Because in Joseph's dream, it wasn't just the stars bowing to him, but the sun and the moon as well. And his father said, is your mother the moon and I am the sun? He had to bow to Joseph's demands to bring Benjamin over there. The dream has been fulfilled time after time again. Servant my father and the boy is not with us. Then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, Verse 31, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, speaking of their father, and your servant will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. Let's start examining all the ways Joseph, Judah's heart has been changed. There is not a word of love towards his father up until this point, but you see the love in the speech that he gives to who he thinks is the governor over all of Egypt. That they'll do nothing to hurt their father. Where was this concern when they showed their father the bloody, ripped remnants of that coat? Something has changed in this heart, and that change can only happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's put this into kind of perspective. They come home without Benjamin. Their dad dies. They can lie to themselves all day long. He's over 120 years old. He was going to die anyway. They can rationalize it from every point, but he loves his father so much and, I, and it's only the Holy Spirit who can produce that kind of change in someone's heart. And he says in verse 32, for your servant became a pledge of safety, speaking of himself for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Verse 33, now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. Look at Joseph's, Judah's perspective here. He doesn't know Benjamin's innocent. As far as he knows, Benjamin is guilty as sin. 
And now they're all in a bad situation. He, he can let Benjamin have the just penalty for his own crime. But instead he says, I will pay the penalty instead of my brother. The lion of the tribe of Judah saw you. And you weren't framed. You're guilty. You're guilty as sin. And not just the sins before you knew Christ, but even the sins after you've known Christ. And he knows all of this. And he humbles himself to the nature of, what does the scripture say? A servant. The Greek word is doulos, which means slave. And became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Judah here, so many thousands of years before Jesus Christ, says, I will take the blame. I will be the slave. He believes Benjamin's guilty. He doesn't dispute any of the charges. He accepts the penalty for the boy. Why? Because he loves him. Why does he love him? Everything that was said of Joseph can be said about Benjamin except for the code itself. Maybe since God had given Judah grace, he wants to give that same grace. He does so according to him because of the love of his father. He fears to see evil, what evil would find him. Unlike Benjamin, we are guilty though. Our eldest brother, the descendant of Judah, Jesus Christ, knows this. Because he loves us, and because he loves the father, he humbles himself to the nature of a slave, to death, even death on the cross. I have at length mentioned how Jesus is like Joseph, but right at this moment, Judah is like Jesus. Is that you? Have you accepted the sacrifice of our eldest brother? And that's all that's required. It's not even an action. It's what God does in our heart to make us alive with Christ, to accept the sacrifice of our eldest brother. Judah here, he has now passed a test that he couldn't have passed before. Even when his sin was found out, before his sin was found out with Tamar, he wanted her burned. But when she gave him the signet, he said, she is more righteous than I. Something changed in Judah. And that same change is working in us. Even as believers, we still sin, but the blood of Christ covers our sin. Joseph gave his brothers this test, but God either allowed it or urged Joseph to do it. Why? Doesn't he already know that Ju Ju how Judah would act? Absolutely. So why give a test you know that will be passed? For Joseph, for Joseph, it reduces him to a puddle of sobbing in this next chapter we'll get to next week. But for us, we get to see what love looks like and the echoes of Christ all the way back in the Old Testament for Judah is to reveal in him the work of the Holy Spirit. For righteousness' sake, Judah has become a living sacrifice. This is our spiritual act of worship. It's part of the way we love each other. We forgive each other because Christ has forgiven us. We offer grace to those undeserving of grace because we've been given grace. I pray the church, our church, our specific church, faith church, we would be such a place. That when somebody has messed up, we would show grace and forgiveness. 
That when we've messed up, we know that there is a throne of grace to come to and we don't have to live in the prison of shame anymore because we have a high priest who has gone before us, tested in every way and proven faithful so we don't have to have on our shoulders the, the burden of being perfect, but we always look to be satisfied by righteousness. This is not This is not, if you're watching online, this is not permission to sin. Should we sin so that grace may increase? Absolutely not. I'm just saying, if you are in the prison of guilt for your sin, today is the day you get free. Today is the day you might understand that God, as he tests you again, he's going to give you a win in that test. So you see, it's not me, it's the Holy Spirit. Worship team, would you come up at this time? Past failures are not future destiny. Judah failed the test time and time again. He passed this one because of the power of the Holy Spirit inside of him, who took him through as he learned from those past failures. Forgiveness isn't something of the past. Now God expects us to earn it in the future. All of our life is spent in the grace of Jesus Christ. God's mercies are truly new every morning. I've got... Two challenges for you today as we finish in our last song. One, have you failed the test? Know this, it's not over. You are going, if you are going through a test, lean on God for strength because that's your only way out under it. Pray, and I'm actually going to steal this from Patrick in his uh, testimony this last week. One of the things he said, you know, encouraged our students to pray for was knowledge, understanding, wisdom, faith, and action. I'm going to put this kind of in my own order. We pray for faith so that we can hear the word of God clearly. We pray for knowledge in that we read the scripture and we have what God wants us to know, understanding on how, what that means to us specifically, wisdom, so we know what to do. And then we need to pray for action. Because faith without works is dead. Our faith should produce in us action. So not only understanding, not only knowing, but also in our faith, having a wisdom and putting that into practice. What have you learned from your past test? That is a gift for you to hold on to your heart so that you might be ready for the next test. What have you not learned from past test? There's a prayer for us to pray. God, you've taken me through a hard time. What have I not learned that you are wanting to teach me? It's never too late. If we lack wisdom, we should go to the Lord and ask because he shows us wisdom. And I remember years after certain tests, I, I praying and I was like, oh, I didn't realize that in the moment. I realize that now. Pray that God would give you wisdom in that as well. What should you learn? What are you not learning in your current test? Have you been found wanting in the past? Know that that is not your future. You will shine through as gold. That was Job's hope. That was the psalmist's hope. That was the early church's hope. That all of these things we go through, whether temptations, tests, and trials, all of, it, all of this will refine us as gold.